Welcome to the latest Irish Times Book Club uh, with myself, Martin Doyle, author Audrey McGee, um, book club reader Pauline Dallahan, and reviewer Anna Carey. Um, we're here today to discuss with Audrey The Undertaking, which was shortlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, which is a remarkable achievement for a debut novelist. It's a wartime love story with a remarkable twist or two. Firstly, the couple are German and, if not Nazis, they're certainly fellow travellers. And secondly, they barely meet uh, in the book. Um, Audrey, perhaps we could start off um, if you could tell us about the, the genesis of the story, how it came about. It actually goes back quite a long way at this stage to, to when I was 18 and I went to Germany for the first time. Um, and the bizarre thing was I had no background in German. I hadn't even done German for leaving, but suddenly I was studying at, at university and I had to go to Germany. Um, so I landed in very naively, um, I suppose, full of kind of John Cleese goose-stepping around the floor, you know, don't mention the war, and, you know, I hadn't even done history, actually. Um, and I suppose I was stunned first and foremost by the silence over the war because if you come from if you came from Ireland even though obviously we were neutral in the war you were quite immersed in the American Anglo interpretation of the war victory everything but there was so much about the war whereas when you went to Germany there was nothing about the war nobody spoke about the war not just older people but also even my peers you just you did not go there which was fine, you know, I was 18, you move on. Um, and then I ended up living in Germany for a year or more. And um, while I was there, um, I was about 21 at this stage, I was in Munich and I met an American Jewish man. And he had, he was on a trip of Europe, um, one of these kind of six month vacations. And he had promised his family that he would go to Dachau where he had lost relatives. And he's going back to the US the following day. And I said, well, look, I'll go down with you. So we went out, well, sorry, up in fact. So we went out on the train together and we got there and it was closed because it was Monday. And he was going back, as I said, the next day. So he was devastated because he had six months, he had one thing to do and it was to pay homage and tribute to his relatives. And he was obviously very upset and I said, well, look, let's walk around the perimeter. Let's just do something. We've come this way, at least have a sense of what it was like or, you know, you can have something to talk about. And it was quite astonishing because it's, it's a huge complex. And as we walked, the everything is as it was. Um, whereas you probably saw with Auschwitz recently, uh, they blew up all the crematoria and all that. Everything in, in, in Dhaka was exactly as it had been. So we actually were getting quite a sense of it in the barbed wire, everything. It was just as it had been left when um, at the end of the war. But as we walked, we met um, an older woman tending to her garden and... It was a beautiful day in July and we stopped and we chatted and he had no German and she had no English so I was interpreting between the two and as we talked it emerged that she had lived in this house all her life and this house the garden abutted the camp the garden went right down to the camp wall and this is where she had lived had slept had eaten and for him in his already fraught state this was just actually too much it was very difficult for him to understand how she could have stayed through it and continue to live there. She was literally a bystander. Well, was it even just a bystander or was it more, Mm -hmm. you know, by not doing anything, are you complicit? Mm -hmm. Um, So this is actually the type of discussion we ended up having. He wanted to know how she could have 
stayed there? How, what did she do? And she said, you know, what could I have done? I didn't know anything. And if I did know something, what could I have done? So, you know, the pair of them ended up in this incredible standoff. Mm-hmm. And it was a very emotional event um, for, in fact, all three of us, even though I was in the middle. Because you just realize that obviously he couldn't, he couldn't let go an inch of his position because he was betraying his family mm-hmm. and obviously what had ha- happened on the other side of the wall. But for the first time I realized, nor could she, because if she did, she was, she was devastated. She was destroyed mm-hmm. by that failure to do anything. Again, what could she have done? And I suppose that stayed with me for obviously a very long time. And it was actually in West Cork that the genesis then for the undertaking um, okay. was was born, really. It's interesting. There's a documentary just recently on television I saw about Alfred Hitchcock and various other, um, Billy Wilder, I think, were involved as well in, in yeah. making a, a propaganda or a documentary film, in fact, about um, the the concentration camps, but also about um, the the Germans who live near them, Hitchcock and in particular made the point that they should have maps to show that these concentration camps were so close to huge population centres. Completely. In, um, in and also in it showed uh, the documentary um, Germans, local dignitaries, but also local people being forced to walk past the corpses of um, the Jewish people in the concentration camp and witness you know, the what had gone on there and confront them with the reality of it, A, for their own sakes, but also as a kind of a, a lesson to history so that, you know, the the Holocaust could not be denied in, in decades or generations to come. Though, though, as you say about people never talking about it, um, when I was in college, there, or I did German in college as well, there was a girl in my class who had lived in a British army base in Germany and her father had worked there and uh, he used to ask some of the you know, the people who lived in the area, he was dentist and he saw people in the area and one of them to, who had been a boy at the end of the war told him about them having, they didn't live near a concentration camp but they'd all, the Americans had sort of made them come into like the village hall or something and watch footage of it. Mm. For, you know, very strong, it's all strong footage and um, this girl's dad asked him what happened, you know, afterwards, like what did you talk about, what did people say? And he said, nobody said anything mm. and they never mentioned it and he's, you know, he, for the rest of his life, they never mentioned it. She said that the, this, you know, dentist working on a British army base was the first person who'd ever asked him. Um, and uh, I mean, I was wondering in, in the book, I mean, how much historical research did you did you do reading the sort of firsthand accounts or, you know, the contemporary... Um, Not. I suppose I started first with tertiary texts, you know, kind of more general um, biographies, historical... Fact, and then moving gradually to the to the first-hand accounts, to the diaries, to the to the to the spoken narratives, any any I could find. So yeah, I went from really quite a broad spectrum to absolutely very very narrow, very personal, very personalised. Um, but a lot, yeah, there was a lot of research and reading, and and I suppose just trying to get a feel for for things like well, I suppose on, on different levels for films people were watching, books people were reading. But also then rations, you know, you know, I find myself in the kitchen weighing things because what, what did it mean to have your, your meat ration cut in half and then quartered and then cut to a fifth of what it had been? So so that kind of really just crying out quite a visceral understanding of um, what it was like to have been there. In ways, it was <clears throat> a very brave undertaking for a first novel 
to take on a subject as delicate or as as fraught um, as the the Holocaust or Germans' complicity in the atrocities, and also then to um, take on writing at it from the point of view of those Germans, of people who themselves were complicit, whether in taking over the flat of a Jewish family in Berlin, upward mobility, um, or to be a soldier in the German army and you know carry out atrocities and so forth, and some of the, the propaganda that they're spouting. Um, did, did you recognise the, the scale of the, the challenge that you were undertaking? I am... Um you know, the old adage of write what you know. <laughs> I completely ignored it, didn't I? Um, y- you know, it kind of crept up on me. I didn't I didn't set out, in a way, I suppose, to some degree, I've, I've distilled a kind of an epic period in, in history into, into the point of view of a, from a couple, you know, so it is quite a distilled take on, on a big topic. Um, you know, if I had thought about it too much, I would probably never have done it. Mm-hmm. But it, I didn't even, I set out really mainly to explore and to understand. And I think that's what kept me from being overwhelmed by it was was just the need to try and understand just what we've been talking about, what was behind that silence. And also to kind of say, well, what would I have done? Mm-hmm. You know, if it had happened here, how would I have behaved? What were the circumstances that were, uh, the pervasive circumstances, really? Um, so, yeah, I didn't think about it too much. I just kept going. I mean, I, I did. I did have difficulties sometimes where you know you. Were, I think the thing I faced found most difficult was knowing that this was not my history. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it had nothing to do with me, and it's a very. It's, you're taking a really quite a. I suppose I'm imposing myself in. in in quite a fragile territory because, you know, it's a very difficult thing to be a German and have this history. And I did struggle with that, but but I drew every time on Heinrich Bull and, you know, mm-hmm. it was quite facile, really. He wrote about Ireland, mm-hmm. so I can write about <laughs> Germany. That, that was it. <laughs> Before we come back to Heinrich Bull, could could you answer that question? Like, how do you think you would have behaved in, in that circumstance? Um, I still don't actually know the answer because... Um, I think sometimes I, I, well, I presume I would never have taken over somebody's flat. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know I know I would never have done that. But if I had a child who didn't have a coat and there was a coat for sale in a pawn shop, would, would I have bought it? If I had a cold child, would I have bought it? I, I would really struggle to say no, mm. you know. And I think that's where I suppose you have to have the empathy and you have to suspend complete judgment because we weren't there and it is very easy to castigate and judge but actually it's harder to try and see it mm-hmm. from the other perspective and I think as well you know when when we have had probably the upbringing we've all had um, where you've been bombarded with just this sense of victory and and um, success well what is it like to be defeated and a failure mm-hmm. you know and, and I suppose I was drawn to that um, one of the most chilling, I think, aspects of the book is the fact that they're not active Nazis before the war and yet they're completely complicit quite quickly. I mean, what did you, how how typical do you think that sort of experience was where people who weren't, you know, completely passionate about the Nazi cause and yet will do things like move into a Jewish family's flat and be a bit, you know, worried if they could wear a Jewish cardigan or something or in their spare time go around, you know, 
dragging Jewish children out of their beds without even the sort of, without the, 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 that they're so easily swayed to it, which, you know, thousands of Germans were, so it's not like it's, it's unrealistic. I mean, how, how did you sort of approach that aspect of it and, and how did you try and understand how people who didn't have this huge political conviction could be absorbed into, a, you know, this brutal ideology? Well, I think you have to look at, at, at the power of that ideology and I, I think you have to consider things like radio um, and the impact of, like, we're quite used to now to hearing messages, say, coming through on radio and distilling them and making, uh, kind of making our own analysis of whether they're true or whatever. But radio was an incredibly powerful force then. Just, I'm just taking one small example. And it was suddenly kind of landing into people's lives, into people's rooms. And it, it had an incredibly strong impact. Um, so that's just one very small element. But I also think you've got to understand that people were... People were under pressure. They were um, finding it more difficult to get food. They were finding it more difficult to get heating. Um, so very much kind of more day-to-day kind of things that they had been used to beca- became harder to find. So I think people, I mean, if you take the case of Peta, um wanting extended leave, you know, people do things and close their minds to things because there's a kind of a brewing atmosphere um, if kind of everybody else is doing it, it becomes normalized. And they were living in a place where things were becoming normalized. Um, so brutality was becoming normalized. Um, but it, as I said, into that, you're adding short, shortage of food, shortage of heating. So people start to do things just to get kind of day-to-day comforts. Um, and, and I think things creep up on people. I mean, I think you can look at any society in any period in history. You can look at our own our own society recently, you know, where where things kind of creep up on people um, and suddenly you, you, you realise you're in much deeper than you had anticipated. And and I think I try to show that, that it's a kind of a, in one way it's fast, but in another way it's a kind of a gradual inurement to what's going on around you. And, you know, you have, you have people who want, you referred to it earlier, this kind of upward social mobility and take an apartment, you know, suddenly... And the, and also, if I can go back even further, there was an awful lot of grievance. Kind of Hitler very cleverly and Goebbels very cleverly tapped into this sense of of grievance over what happened in the wake of Versailles. So there was a sense of that they'd been hard done by. There was a sense of it was kind of now their turn. Um, you know, they had suffered enough. And it's quite easy to tap into that kind of sense, that just sense of, you know, we need a little bit of payback now. So... Pauline, could I bring you into the conversation? How did you find the book? What were your impressions of it? Um, yeah, in, enjoyed it an awful lot. I thought that the the language was very apt to your subject matter. You know, the harrowing war needed that kind of direct language. Um, so it's interesting you introduced it, Martin, as a romantic novel, but I wouldn't have even thought, having read it, I thought it would be romantic at the beginning, but it turned out to me to be just completely a, a story about war. Um, I didn't get the romantic element really at all. It was part of how the story unfolded, of course. Um, but yeah, one of the main things that, that hit me was that I found that none of the main characters, I could see any integrity in them at all. I couldn't find any compassion. Uh, obviously, there were all the circumstances and we were in on the story. It wasn't the beginning of the story where we came in on it. So we didn't have that history that you've just described. So 
we had to kind of take it that, yeah, there was, there was more to this brewing, you know, already. Uh, the uh, the brother was already at war. Um, we don't know what other circumstances had brought us to this point. But at the point that the story began, from there on, I couldn't latch on to any characters and I couldn't see any compassion in any of them. A bar possibly, there was a neighbour who gave porridge to the starving baby and helped clean Katharina. Um, but with that exception, was it too stark a picture to paint of those characters? Or I, I, I was hoping for some glimmer to cling on to, some kind of hope in those main characters. Or, or is, is this just more realistic that no, it's just the devastation of war has left everybody bereft now and empty well, with think, no hope? I think it comes back to what Anna's talking about. You know, if... If you do shut your mind to other people's suffering, if you do shut down your empathy, as, as they had to, to um, take over the apartment mm. and start wearing each other's clothes, and well, I, I mean, it has huge consequences on your, pers- on your capacity for compassion because yeah. you have shut it down. So, no, they, they weren't people you could like because mm. what were they doing? How, how, could, how could I portray them as people you're going to want to sit down and have dinner with? I mean, you know... No, because you can't, once you start down that road of cl- shutting your head and shutting, closing your mind to other people's troubles, then you are, you're shutting down your own compassion. But the, the word empathy, I guess, is interesting because normally in a novel there might be one monster or several dislikable characters, but usually there is one likable character or one less dislikable character who is your way in, who is maybe the the character with with whom you identify. Whereas, um, as, as Pauline suggests there, most of the characters um, in The Undertaking are pretty dislikable and they're pretty venal. It is a challenge. That's that's kind of what I was getting at earlier on, saying it's you know it's a very brave undertaking to kind of write a novel about Germans who are complicit in the Holocaust or exploitation or war atrocities and so forth. Like I think it works ultimately as a novel, but that is clearly um, a big challenge that that you faced. Um, yeah, I mean, I, where are the nice guys? Well, there weren't any. I mm-hmm. mean. I'm not afraid of that. For me, I didn't need to have some kind of white knight or something. I mean, the, you know, for the Jewish people, there was no white knight. Um, for for Peter and Katharina at the end, I mean, you you challenge the kind of concept of being a romantic novel. I, I, I agree. I don't think it's a romantic novel. I think there's a relationship. Is it even love? I would question whether it's love. It's It's... Mm. It's a concept of love um, and it's a concept of a society and it's a concept of themselves. But no, I never set out to give you an easy read. This is not an easy topic. So, no, I, I don't. I don't at all. One of the things that struck me about the book, certainly, um, you know, the, the, when we published the extract of the first two chapters was um, how dialogue heavy it was. Um, was that intentional or did that somehow um, yeah, come no, about no, in the writing of it? Oh, gosh, no, it was completely intentional in that I wrote it as though it were a play. Do you I, mean I, it was originally intended to be a play? No, no, or? it was never intended to be a play, but just that, that, that so that you come to it almost as an audience member and, and that you... That you, when you go to a play, you have to bring yourself to a play, and you have to interact with the characters, and 
I suppose, participate. And, and this wasn't going to be a novel that was going to do things for you and just hand you everything on a plate. You had, you had to work with the characters and make your own judgments and just as you would in a play. So you have to listen very carefully to what they're saying and to what they're not saying when you go to a play. And I wanted to achieve the same type of um, concept, a bit not unlike Strindberg's um, theatre in, in, in Berlin, in that, you know, this this concept of, you know, you're, you're in there, you're not leaving, there's no interval, you are here to stay, and I'm not letting you out until this is over. So, yeah, you know, I, I it was um, it was Mary Morrissey, um, my friend and that wonderful writer who... Uh, who said, you know, I, I, I take you by the scruff of the neck. And I do, and I don't apologise for that. It is very much to to ask us all to look at this again and to look at this differently and not to forget, um, because I think it's... We've kind of become a little bit used to how how to view the Second World War, and I, and I just actually feel very strongly that um, we need to keep looking at it and we need to keep looking at it in different ways and I suppose that's what I set out to do you know um, Okay Pauline did the dialogue have that effect for you did it kind of you know um, bring you into the scenes or sort of It, it did but you, you did need to stop and think for a moment as you say because it, it essentially was a chronicle of events with kind of stick, staccato style conversations going on so we did have to draw our own conclusions which was great you, you made you know it, it we just had to take take it as it was. And so you had to look. I, I suppose more, I was looking more as well at the actions as well. It was, we had to draw conclusions about what was said, mm-hmm. which was reasonably easy, I suppose, but more so what was done or not done. And I found, you, you know, just tuning into all the, the small little things that, that the people did and said, you, was, there were sudden little turning points, um, you know, towards the end, for example, when the, the father who had been an active Nazi during the war, has suddenly, on a whim, it's all turned on its head. Mm-hmm. And someone who would, um, who would have written off his son-in-law for, for giving up to Russians, has suddenly, um, in, in one small comment he made about, uh, he was now going to learn Russian, or he was, he was saying, oh yeah, well done the Russians for, for using the prisoners constructively to cut down trees or something. Mm-hmm. So a little comment like that, um, and it, it just throws everything up, up in the air altogether. Um, so I don't know, I've obviously you intended that and it was carefully put into that point, but that to me was kind of a real, stop me in my tracks, I thought. What, mm-hmm. what was that all about? So hang on. Is, do you feel that that is how a lot of the, the German activists, how they ended up feeling? Well, there were an awful lot of, 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 of Nazis who ended up working for the Stasi. Yeah. You know, so they just switched sides. Yeah, you know, that yeah. happened a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, that the country was split and then... You they know, go where the power goes. They, they, they do. And, and the denazification was not usually, you know... But also if you've swallowed one ideology, you've probably yeah. got, you know, you're well, of, a, the, of a mindset the to swallow are there, The benefits traveler. are there for mm-hmm. both, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's, yeah. um, it's as you say, it's a power, it's a power system, mm-hmm. both the power systems, and if you're interested in power, you will, you will switch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought the dialogue was very powerful to begin with. I thought it kind of, you know, dropped you headlong into the action and certainly um, it swept me along. After a while, I did find it a bit relentless and kind of sometimes a more narrative or descriptive passages can kind of 
um, maybe give you an opportunity to take a breath or whatever. How did you find it, Anna? I remember in your review? Um, I did. I found it a bit claustrophobic after a while, but I thought there were bits where it worked really. Uh, I thought the the Stalingrad um, sections it felt very visceral. Um, I think there were stages when it was sort of like three pages of it. It started to. Um, it felt a bit airless, but I thought in the in the uh, the actual the battle sections were just brilliantly done. I'm reading Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate at the moment, which is also about Stalingrad, though from obviously the other perspective because he's Russian. But that sense of uh, of just the sheer awfulness of Stalingrad that sometimes just the that terse dialogue worked really well. I thought sometimes in some of the other, um, especially the the Berlin set scenes, it just it it was a bit too relentless. But um, I thought it were it, it was really apt for the the battle stuff. And I was wondering, you know, with the it's very it's surprisingly hard to write about or to convey war effectively, um, or to convey a battle effectively without it being kind of tedious. And you know, and then there's you know. Panzer Zwei, you know, moves around the corner, you know, make it look like some sort of weird stratagem stuff. I mean, how did you try and, you know, what did you have in mind when you were writing the actual sort of actual Stalingrad scenes, especially when they are fighting or they're, you know, hold up somewhere? What did you think was the, the most the important things to capture? What it was like for the men? I mean, what it was like on the ground for the men? What what you face emotionally, physically, yes, but emotionally. So when you talk about the Panzer, I mean, I deliberately didn't refer to guns or bog the whole thing down and which tank they were using or whatever. I mean, that was obviously a deliberate decision because for me, it's it's all about the people and what they had to go through and what people continue to go through in war. So in one way, for me, it was obviously in one way, it's, it's about Stalingrad, but, it, it, you, you know, you, it could be about any battle where people are holed up and, you know, being pounded. So, yeah, it was was really about what it was like to be abandoned in a siege yeah. and what that really did for for the state of your mental and physical health. So, yeah, that's, that's really what I was trying to achieve there. Could the Holocaust have happened in Ireland? Like, are Germany and Ireland so Huge different? <laughs> That is an extraordinary question. I, I did ask that of a German friend of mine. I would say uh, no, because, well, for example, even comparing, could what happened in Yugoslavia have happened here? And it didn't happen well, here. Maybe not well, maybe not I, I don't. I mean, look at 1922. Look at them burning of houses and people being, and more you the, know. More uh, to the point, we basically had concentration camps for unmarried mothers up yeah, till, you know, really? the 70s. Yeah, so, I, I you know, I think in terms of... Uh, <laughs> That's quite a remarkable thing to say, Anna. Well, how can you compare, how can I, you compare what happened well, to unmarried not an mothers to it's the It's not an extermination. But it, no, I didn't say extermination camps. I meant literally concentration camps as invented by Black the British in, in the Boer mm. War. I grew up across the road from Hyde Park. It was a place where women were forced to go. They weren't allowed leave when I was a kid in the 80s there were still old women there who'd been there for like decades we can dehumanise outsider groups quite as well as other countries can uh, we're doing it in direct provision right now like it's we're not actually killing people um, but we cer- certainly have a long history of deciding that certain parts of society aren't desirable and completely ignoring them everybody in where I lived you know didn't show huge compassion for the women in the biggest laundry in Ireland which was in High Park on, on Grace Park Road so, you know, and I think that's actually was one of the motivating 
forces for me about, of the book was that, you know, we very much compartmentalised Germany as them. You know, well, that was them. Only they could do something like that. And, you know, and then you see Bosnia and you see Rwanda, Syria, whatever, whatever country you want to draw on. And it keeps happening. Maybe not in such an organised, systematic fashion. Mm-hmm. But the patterns are the same. You know, so what are those patterns in human behaviour? Why, you know, I mean, I, obviously it wasn't, a, it wasn't a death camp, but it wasn't far off in terms of... of camp, it was a prison camp and it was a work it was a forced labor. forced labor and, you know, people died, unmarked graves, babies Mass died. Graves. Yeah. So it is in us all. Now, to what extent we allow it to take hold and take root? Well, you know, I mean, if I do believe if you look at Bosnia and it had gone on and on, well, how, how big would it have become? How systematic would it have become? Mm-hmm. In Rwanda as well, it was chaotic. But... If it had been if it had been given time to for a structure to build, would it have been similar? Um, I mean, look what happened in Japan during during the um, during the war. There, they had they had camps, they had systematic labor, you know, that led to huge numbers of deaths and brutality. So, I think it's in I think it's in us in humanity, and that's harder to actually accept than just to say, oh, well, that was Germany, and it can't happen again, you know. And I suppose when I met when I went there first was like oh my god everybody's so normal it's shocking you know Mm. because it's much easier to think of it being something that was just in them rather than something that's in us. (laughs) Could you talk about the the difference between being a journalist which is your previous career writing for the Irish Times, the Guardian, the Times and so forth and uh, writing fiction Um, is it a totally different? Oh yeah no it's it's hugely different um I suppose I reached a stage where I, I reached a kind of a point in journalism where I just knew it wasn't enough for me anymore. Um, and I kind of reached a conclusion that journalism for me became about knowing things, whereas I really wanted to understand or try to understand. And I realized that I can only do that through fiction and through allowing myself more time to read and consider. And um, that's what really, um, it was that or go mad. <laughs> so, you mentioned Heinrich Böll earlier on. Um, how did you perceive his take on Ireland? Um, how accurate do you think it was? Well, I mean, it raised a few hackles, didn't it? Um, I mean, nobody likes anybody, an outsider, writing about their country. Um, but I do remember reading um, his Irish journal, his Irishish Tagebuch, and I loved it. I loved his wonderful capacity for seeing things quite simply and... He, some people felt he was patronising. Um, I didn't. I, I felt he saw what was very beautiful about Ireland, um, that Ireland was at risk of losing and that many people would feel that Ireland has lost or is still at risk of losing. Um, and he captured that. And I think just because he came from the trauma of the war um, and came to the West, which you know, in the 1950s was so incredibly other for him. And I I thought he captured that terribly well. A lot of those stories have lingered with me. And did you finish the book, given the the nature of the the story and the ending? um, Did you come away with a kind of a feeling of of satisfaction or elation or more kind of a feeling of exhaustion, like the the war is over? I was exhausted. I was covered in mouth ulcers. (laughs) (laughs) I was exhausted. (laughs) 
I hadn't realized the physical side um, of, of writing. And I think it's issue guru who says you actually need to be very well rested to write and fit to write. Because you do, it's, it's quite a marathon. And emotionally, uh, did you feel wrong out? Oh, my out? God, it's... Mm. Well, you know, you, you, you say goodbye to people, in this case, I've spent 10 years with. And, you know, they're not great people, I agree. But, you know, <laughs> they're in my head. They're my people. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, no, it's it's a big wrench. It's a big wrench. Yeah, you're quite bereft. And then, you know, and it's it is, it's almost like ending a relationship because then you have to turn and go meet these other people for the next book and you feel so disloyal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've been in this relationship with these people and it's like, see ya, mm. I'm over here. <laughs> okay, well, listen, Audrey, we'll leave it there. Hopefully not too many mouth ulcers after the podcast. Thank you very much for coming in and talking about The Undertaking. Thanks, Pauline, for joining us and also Anna. Hopefully you'll tune again uh, next month to the next Irish Times Book Club podcast. Um, Thanks for listening.